Well, go ahead and take a seat and go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you are joining us for the first time or haven't been here for a while, we have been studying through the book of Revelation. We are going to make our way all the way through it, Lord willing, but we have been uh, hunkering down in these two chapters, chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters that Jesus has written to seven different churches, historical churches. They're real churches in uh, the history of uh, the early church. These churches grew, these churches formed, and Jesus is writing these letters, chapter 2 and 3, in an apocalyptic book, as we've been looking at in uh, our Sunday school hour with our brother Marty, who's been doing a masterful job going through observation, interpretation, application. As we look at the genre of this book, it's apocalyptic, but inside of this apocalyptic book, there are epistles. These two chapters are epistles. They're just letters that Jesus is writing to his church. A common theme that we've seen in these letters is the theme of faithfulness to the very end, persevering to the very end, enduring to the end, not compromising, not giving up, not giving way to false doctrine or to false deeds or to a lack of devotion. And this letter, in verses 18 through 29 of chapter 2 to the church in Thyatira, is no different. We're going to see very similar themes, and one of the themes that we'll see again is not compromising, but standing firm for the truth in the midst of cultural compromise, in the midst of tolerance around you to say, no, there is absolute truth. There is one way of doing things. There is truth that we need to cling to, that we need to follow. Even if it means we lose our job, we lose our house, we lose our very lives. As I was thinking through men from church history, men and women who have lost their lives for the gospel, I just was thinking through our study in Revelation. We've already covered Polycarp, burned at the stake after saying, Jesus has been faithful to me for this many years. How could I not be faithful to him to the end? How could I deny him now and burned at the stake? That was John's apostle or John's disciple. That was his follower. Polycarp, faithful to the end. We've talked about a pastor, uh, Pastor Tsun, uh, a few Lord's days ago, we talked about him. We talked about his amazing testimony of standing before his persecutors and saying, look, you have one weapon against me, and that's to kill me, and that weapon will only produce more followers for the gospel, produce more truth going out into the world. Your weapon will only make the gospel go out into the world, and the, the church grows. So you really have no weapon against me. We've talked about Master Ridley and Master Latimer, who were burdened at the stake as well, and tied back to back behind a a wooden post as the flames were starting to to burn. They said to one another, play the man, let us this day light a match that will go out through all of England and will not soon be put out. Just let God handle this. Talked about Luther and how he said, here I stand. I can't make a compromise on the word of God, even though the Catholic Church as a whole is telling me that I should change my stance on this. No, I can't do anything else. I stand on God's word. We haven't talked about William Tyndale. William Tyndale was actually the reason why you have a Bible in your hands. William Tyndale is the reason why you have a copy of God's word in your hands in English. He was the first person to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, into English. 
And he is the reason why we have a Bible in English even to this day. He opposed Henry VIII because Henry VIII had divorced his wife for unbiblical reasons, and he opposed him. He stood face to face, toe to toe against him, and said, no, you're wrong. The Bible is very clear what marriage is supposed to be, the allowances for divorce. This is not a biblical allowance for divorce, and because of that, the king did not like him very much. He also stood toe to toe against the Catholic Church, that praying to saints is nowhere in the Bible, or that the hierarchy of bishops or priests, that somehow they hold the key to being able to understand the Bible. And therefore, the Catholic Church said, you don't need a Bible in your own common language. We will do the the reading for you. You just need to trust us because you cannot understand the Bible apart from an expert understanding it. And William Tyndale said, no, that's not the case. The Bible was made to be read by every single person in their own language. And so I want to give a a copy of God's Word, he said, to to the person who who is pushing the plow in the field. I want them to know, because they don't need an expert to teach them if they have the Holy Spirit teaching them. He is the one who wrote it, and they can understand through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, through the Holy Spirit's illumination. So he was asked to stop translating the Bible. He was asked to stop getting angry at the king and angry at the church and trying to do his own thing, and he said, no, I can't compromise. This is the truth. I can't change what the truth is. I can't change my stance on the truth. And therefore, on October 6th, 1536, at the age of 42, because he would not bow the knee to anyone other than Jesus, he was first strangled at the stake, and then his body was burned. Before he was strangled, he said, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Open his eyes. His prayer was ultimately answered because in 1611 there was a commission by the king himself. Uh, We know him, King James. He authorized the King James Version of the Bible to be translated and disseminated into the churches. But he would not falter. William Tyndale would not falter on this point. This is God's Word, and we cannot make it say what we want it to say, or if it disagrees with something that we want to hold to, we cannot say, "Mm, the Bible says one thing, but I'm okay to hold something else. So we've been going through these letters to these churches. We've seen the relevance to our congregation, to our culture, to our church, and to our landscape today, because we are going to go into the exact same battles that these churches are going through. Will you compromise when the going gets rough? Will you change your stance on what truth is? Even if it gets you in trouble, even if you might lose your life for not compromising, what will you do? Same question faced the church that we're looking at this morning, the church in Thyatira. And again, so fascinating to see that though this letter is written 2,000 years ago, it still applies to us today. So let's read it together. We'll ask God's blessing on our time and then we'll dive in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance or steadfastness and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, 
that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, do not, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come before you and we, we admit and acknowledge our need for help. Our fleshly eyes can see these words and our fleshly mind can understand with reasoning what they are intending to say. But our hearts cannot fully grasp, our spirit, our soul cannot understand the realities of what you are asking of us, what you are saying to us this morning, unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see. This is a spiritual book, and therefore we need spiritual assistance. And that's why we pray every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We can't see it on our own. So we renounce any form of self-reliance. God, I pray that your word would go forth in such a way that it would change us, change our affections, change our actions, change our attitudes, change our outlook on life. And God, as we've seen so often in these letters, make us faithful and fearless in the days ahead. We pray all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All these letters follow the same pattern. We've seen them over and over again. It's a greeting. Every letter starts with a greeting, then a description of Jesus that's relevant to that church, then a declaration of what Christ knows, then a criticism, then a warning, then a promise, and an exhortation. This morning we are going to get through probably four of those, uh, Lord willing, and then we will come back next Lord's Day and we'll finish this letter to the church in Thyatira. And then we're going to spend the remainder of December just looking at Christmas. So we're going to take a break, we're going to pause uh, at the end of chapter 2 in Revelation. We're going to pause and we're going to dialogue about Christmas, go through all sorts of different texts in the Gospel of Luke, and look at these different things uh, just from a different perspective, a unique perspective through the Christmas season. But for this morning... Let's begin by looking at the greeting, and we'll see how far we get through these points. The greeting, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, to the pastor of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is the smallest of the seven cities. It's the smallest of the seven churches. 
But interestingly enough, even though it's the smallest of the seven cities and the smallest of the seven churches, it receives the longest of all of the letters. More ink is spilled on this letter than on all of the others. Its name means sacrifice. Thyatira just means sacrifice. It sat about 40, 45 miles away from Pergamum, east of Pergamum. Remember this circular uh, postal route starting in Ephesus and going to end in Laodicea. It used to be a very strong military outpost. It was placed there back in the Greek days as a stronghold to slow down incoming attacks to Pergamum. It just was a military outpost city. But when Rome began the Pax Romana, that era of peace around 30 BC, the military significance and need of the city just went away. So it transitioned into this textile industry city. It was known for dyeing fabrics this purple color. Um, we actually know a woman who is from this city in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. If you remember Lydia, it says Lydia in Acts 16 is from Thyatira, and she was a seller of the purple fabrics. And she, as a convert in probably the ministry of the church in Thyatira, goes to uh, Paul and is taught by Paul and helps start the church there in Acts chapter 16. The purple dye that is... Uh, mentioned in Acts 16, was really, really expensive. It was very rare. It only came from two sources back then. Number one, it came from a shellfish, and from the throat of the animal, you had to squeeze the throat, and only one drop of purple dye would come out of the animal's throat. So imagine trying to dye a garment purple. You'd need a lot of these different animals, and squeeze their throat is a huge, arduous process. Uh, Roman writers that we have today that we can see uh, how expensive this purple dye was, even just one pound of it couldn't be bought for a thousand denarii. So a, a denarii is a day's wage. So a thousand days wages couldn't even buy one pound of this purple dye. So they had to find another way to get this purple dye. And so the way that they found it was in the city of Thyatira, there was a, a root. It was called the matter root, and the matter root grew plentifully around Thyatira, and it would produce this purple dye. So Thyatira became this uh, huge commercial city, producing a lot of different trades and guilds and unions. Uh, the most famous of them was this purple fabric dye. But every guild, every trade guild, every uh, organization had with it a deity. Thyatira was not known for emperor worship very much. It wasn't known for worshiping all these big gods. There was no huge temple to Asclepius like we've talked about with these other churches. But this city was known for all of these different guilds that had a deity overseeing the trade union and the trade guild. They had a patron god, if you will, a patron deity. And in order to work in the specific guild, you had to attend a festival to worship that deity. And in that festival, you would eat food that had been sacrificed to the idols, and then you would participate in sexual immorality worshiping those idols. So therefore, if you wanted to work in one of these trade guilds, in one of these unions, you needed to go through the process, through these festivals of worshiping these deities, and then being involved in sexual immorality. One historian says it this way, there is obviously a very real problem here. If Thyatira, if in Thyatira, the Christian merchant or trader or craftsman is a member of the trade guild and participated in those ceremonies, he would protect his work, his business interests, 
and ensure his material prosperity. But if he refused to become a member of such a guild and refused to participate in its ceremonies, he was very definitely committing commercial suicide and would very soon be faced with poverty, even bankruptcy. So before a Christian in Thyatira was the, the decision, do you work or do you follow God? That was the decision. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to the festivals? Are you going to participate in the festivals? You're not going to go? What do we do? And again, this is incredibly relevant for us today. What are you going to do in your own business when faced with a dilemma? Do I bow the knee to Jesus and obey him in this, or do I bow the knee to the culture, to the people around me, and to the sin that's going on in society? That's Thyatira. That's the city. And so Jesus says, this is a letter that's going to be written, given to the pastor, the angel of the church, the pastor of the church in Thyatira. Number two, we see the description of Jesus. We see the description of Jesus. And there's really three descriptions here. First is that he is the son of God. Uh, We'll look more in detail about that and why that's relevant to Thyatira next week, Lord willing. But son of God, he is deity. He is God. And he has, number two, eyes like a flame of fire. If you remember back in chapter one, all of these descriptions of Christ are taken from chapter one, the vision that John saw of Jesus. His eyes, Jesus' eyes are a flame of fire. This is an allusion back to Daniel chapter 10, verse six, flaming torches in his eyes that penetrate. They have kind of laser vision going out into every single human heart. He has holy intelligence. Nothing escapes his sight. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is secret. As Hebrew says, everything is laid bare before him. These eyes of flaming fire are a a sign of his omniscience. He knows everything. He sees everything. All of man's ways, Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs all of the motives. So his eyes see every single thing that's going on. And number three, the third description, not only Son of God, not only eyes of a flame of fire, but number three, he has feet that are like burnished bronze. Again, this is taken from chapter one, red hot glowing feet that are pure. All of the impurities because of this glowing process have been burned away. So they're completely pure. They're holy. And he's moving around with this holiness inside of his churches. He's moving, he's walking into the church. His holiness permeates the church and feet and standing on something has the idea of uh, victory, of, of overcoming, having authority over something. So Jesus says, I put my foot over the church. I own it. I have authority over it. It submits to me and my holiness will go throughout the church. It will judge and nothing can resist it. His purity is everywhere. He sees everything and he judges everything. Now, we know that Jesus is going to commend and condemn this church. And I just want, I want to ask you a question. What would you do? How would you respond if Jesus wrote a letter to our church, Dear Christ Bible Church, and he brought a rebuke, a condemnation of who we are and of what we do. How would we respond to that? Would we get defensive? I think a lot of people would get defensive by saying, well, yeah, maybe, but do you see what I'm doing? Do you see how much I love you? Do you see all the works that I'm doing? I I believe that that's what's 
going to be said on the last day. Matthew chapter 7 tells us, many will say on the last day before Jesus, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. We might be tempted, if Jesus is going to rebuke us, we might be tempted to say, don't you know all my works? Don't you know what I'm doing? Maybe my motives aren't pure. Maybe my attitude or my actions or uh, my, my mindset, maybe that's wrong. But don't you know what I'm doing for you? I believe that's why Jesus begins by saying, I know your deeds, verse 19. This is the declaration of what Christ knows. We have a greeting, we have a description of Jesus, and then number three, we have a declaration of what he knows. He says, I know your deeds. It's kind of a preempting of the objections here. I I know your deeds. I know what you do. And what a blessing. This is the smallest of all of the churches and the smallest city of all of the cities, and yet God says, "I, I know what you're doing. God knows the biggest churches. God knows the smallest churches. They all matter to him. They're all in his hands. Remember, the lampstands are in his hand. So even a a small church, a, a small church like CBC Church Family, God knows us. God sees our deeds. God sees our works. God loves us. And he wants to speak to us and address us this morning. So what does Christ know? Number, uh, verse 19, this is number three, a declaration of what Christ knows. He knows their deeds. He knows their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance and that their deeds of late are greater than at first. This is a beautiful list. In the original language, it's, it's very clear that the first two are the motivating factors for the second two in this list. We talked before in Sunday school about lists being important as we study them. This is a list. I know your deeds. You, you have love and faith and you have service and perseverance or steadfastness. Your love compels you to serve. Your faith compels you to be faithful. They tie in together. And not just that, your deeds of late are greater than at first. You're getting better in these things. You're growing in these things. This is the exact opposite of the church in Ephesus. There had been growth and maturity and progress. And unlike Ephesus, this church had some sort of love for Christ. Ephesus for all of their doctrine, had abandoned their first love. But here, Thyatira, for all of its love, there's still going to be a rebuke. So Jesus says, I know your deeds, but I have something against you. This is number four, the criticism. But I have this, verse 20, number four, I have this against you. And what's the criticism? You can very easily put, the criticism is tolerance. The criticism is tolerance. They tolerated the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my slaves astray. They tolerated. We talked about tolerance a few Sundays ago in culture, in society. And uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, I want to talk more about what it looks like to be tolerant, what that looks like, and, and how to do this well inside of a church context. We didn't really get to address that two Sundays ago. We are called by God to call out sin in the lives of professing believers. The question is, what are we called to allow? What are we called to say no? Where's the line? How do we draw that? I want to address all that next Sunday. But just 
by way of reminder for this Sunday, as we talked a few Sundays ago about tolerance, it has changed. The definition has changed. Tolerance used to be, I completely disagree with you, and yet I love you and I won't change my relationship with you because of what I disagree with you about. Now, tolerance is, I can't disagree with you. I have to agree with everything you're saying and champion you in what you're doing. This is the, the ludicrous nature of moral relativism. This is the new tolerance where everyone is right unless you claim to be. You're right until you claim to be right. And then if you say, I'm right, you're not right. This is, this is the, the culture and the landscape around us. We talked about that. And I, I would encourage you, if you, you weren't here a few Sundays ago and we talked about part two of Pergamum, I would encourage you to listen to that message because we talked a lot about how to engage with the culture with this new tolerance movement that postmodernism has championed. Next Lord's Sunday, or next Lord's Day, we will look at how to confront sin inside the church. But for this morning, all we need to know here is very clearly, Jesus says, I'm condemning your tolerance for this woman Jezebel. Jezebel, that's probably not her name. She's probably just given that label because Jezebel, as you know, is probably the most notorious non-believer in the Old Testament. She's one of the most wicked people, if not the most wicked person in the Old Testament. You remember she married, who did she marry? She married Ahab. Uh, if you were to just write these down, you can look at them on your own time. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, uh, God says this, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So as though that, as though that wasn't bad enough, he marries Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and then went on to serve Baal and worship him alongside of Ahab. When Jezebel becomes queen, day one of her job as queen, she brings death to all of God's prophets. She starts killing all of them. She goes into Israel, says, who is a prophet for Yahweh, and starts killing them. She brings in pagan worship, to Baal specifically in 1 Kings 16. She kills the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings 18. She brings the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, to eat at Jezebel's table in her kingdom, 1 Kings chapter 18. She plots out the death of people in Israel. She tries to assassinate many people in 1 Kings 21. And she lures Ahab, her husband, into much of the evil that he had done. I believe that's why Jesus uses her title, her name, to refer to this woman. She, she is like Jezebel where she's luring. Just as Jezebel lured Ahab to do uh, immoral things, so too this woman is luring the Christians in that church to do immoral things. Things got so bad in the Old Testament under Jezebel's wicked reign that Elijah said, I quit and he just took off and went to Egypt. He wanted to hide out in Egypt. Let God, tell me when things will get better, and I'll go back. And God said, hey, you need to go back, because I have this guy, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, his name is Jehu. I have this guy named Jehu, and he's going to kill Jezebel. So just wait. Do you remember how Jezebel dies? It's one of the best stories in the Bible. Jehu goes to uh, the, the castle and says, uh, Jezebel, where are you? And she's up in a window where there's a balcony and she's doing her makeup and Jehu says, hey, is there anybody up there that doesn't like Jezebel? Is there anybody with me up there that doesn't like her? Three eunuchs say, yeah, we, we don't like her. We've been serving here this whole time. We really don't like her. 
And so Jehu says, can you do me a favor? Just throw her out the window. They go, sure, just boop, out, gone, out the window. Uh, She doesn't die by falling out the window. If you remember correctly, she dies by being trampled by a bunch of horses that just so happen to be tied to a chariot that's right where she lands. So she lands, they get spooked, they start trampling her, blood's everywhere. Jehu says, yeah, my work here's done. He leaves. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to see what I have to do in this kingdom. Maybe I, maybe I have to uh, make sure she's good and dead. When he comes back, remember it had been prophesied what was going to happen to her body. She was so wicked, so cursed by God, that God said her body's not going to have a proper burial. That meant you were cursed by God. So when Jehu comes back, he cannot find her body. All he can find is her skull, the palms of her hands, and her feet. Because the rest of her body, like God said, was eaten by dogs. And Jehu goes, great, my, my, my job is definitely done here. This, this is not a typical Sunday school lesson that you get when you're in Awana. I don't know what Kim would do for the take-home craft on the Jezebel death story. I don't know what that would look like, but parents getting that, there'd be a lot of explaining to do when they see the end of Jezebel and Jehu's crazy reign. Here in Revelation, God says, this woman is just as accursed, just as wicked, and her doom is just as sure as Jezebel. That's why he calls her Jezebel. She's a false prophet. She calls herself a prophetess, but she's not a true prophetess. She teaches and leads God's slaves, this is middle of verse 20, astray so that they do two things. They are committing acts of immorality and they're eating things sacrificed to idols. This is what happened in Thyatira. If you wanted to maintain your business, you would have to go to these festivals. You'd have to eat the things that sacrificed to the, the God of your trade guild and you'd have to commit immorality as worship to that God. So Jezebel has lured them into saying this is okay. Somehow this compromise has happened so that the people in Thyatira, the believers are saying this is okay. Now, Jesus says, verse 21, and I want you to take, just make special note of verse 21. I have given her time to repent. I've given her time. Many people will say what is about to come in this passage where he says, I'm going to throw on her bed of sickness and bring great tribulation to her and anybody who follows what she's doing. Many will say, that's really harsh of God. I I get this a lot, even as I teach here at school. Students will say, God's really mean. He's harsh. And I'll say, can you give me an example? And they'll say, well, like the flood. God destroyed all of the earth through the flood. And my question is, did he do it in one second? There's going to be a flood. Flood. No, he said, it's going to take decades for Noah to build the ark. It's going to take a lot of time. And all of that time has been given for the people to repent. Noah is preaching, repent, repent. I'm not building this boat for no reason. Students will say, well, what about Jericho? He destroyed a whole city. Well, number one, They knew about God because Rahab, you remember, she says, we've heard of this God, Yahweh, and I repent. So he had given them time to repent. But even then, when Israel shows up, crosses the Jordan River, enters into Jericho, God does not say, now destroy the city. Seven days, march around one time each day. And on the seventh day, march around seven. You have seven days to repent. Israel's standing at your city walls. You can repent. 
Does God bring judgment against sin? Absolutely. But here we see the grace of our God. I have given her time to repent. I've told people to tell her this is wrong. I have encouraged believers to go to her and to say repent. I've given her time to repent. But why doesn't she repent? Is she unable to? Is God forcing her hand? She's saying, I I don't really want to sin, but for some reason I'm a robot and God's making me do this? No. Why does she not repent? Because she doesn't want to. Brothers and sisters, the battle for sin in our lives, the battle against it and the battle to follow Christ is at the foundational level a battle of your affections. What do you love? What do you desire? Jesus is saying, would you like me or would you like your sin? And she just says, I don't want to turn to you. I want what I want. I want my sin. I gave her time to repent. But she is not repenting because she just doesn't want to. She wants sin instead. Therefore, and this gets us into the warning, but we'll look at this in more detail next week. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. That word sickness isn't in the original. He just says, I'll throw her on the bed. If she wants the bed, she can have the bed. If she wants the bed, she can have it. This is Romans 1 language. I'm asking, I'm pleading, repent, repent, repent. And if she says, this is what I want, I'll say, fine, that's what you can have. And everybody with you, your bed of immorality, your bed of adultery will be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So again, repentance is possible. But if they do not repent, verse 23, I will kill her children. I don't think that's biological children. I think that's figurative. Her followers with the pestilence, with death, and all the churches because of that will know that I am he who searches the minds, searches the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. They will know. Judgment brings the fear, healthy fear of God. And the church, this is Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they tell a lie, and they both drop dead instantly. And what does the church do? After they die, they, they take their bodies out of the church, and they say, we need to make sure that we are a pure people. We need to make sure that we are a pure people. So God says, I know your deeds. I see them. My eyes are the the laser vision into your hearts. My feet are burnished bronze walking around in the midst of the church. I see your deeds. I see your faith and your love. I see your service and your perseverance. I can see it all. But I have one thing against you, and it's your tolerance of sin in the church. One writer summarized this entire letter by saying this, Christ is saying, I am upset because you tolerate sexual sin and idolatry, which I hate. You shall have no other gods before me. And the church at Thyatira tolerated Jezebel and her doctrine. The people never got rid of her. They allowed her to exist in the church. What should they have done and how should they have done it? We'll look at next week. But for this morning, I think it would be appropriate for us to stop at this section of this letter because of the elements that are before us. We have been told by this letter, in this letter, that we shouldn't tolerate the sin that's outside of us, in the church that's outside of us. But I want to take one step back and ask the question, do we tolerate sin inside of us? Before we ever turn an eye to somebody around us and say, hey, you make a profession to be a Christian and you're living in willful, unrepentant, habitual sin, and that needs to stop. Before we ever turn to somebody else, 
We need to turn inward. We need to ask the question, what do we tolerate in our own hearts? And maybe put them under these two uh, sins that this woman leads all the people into. The sin of idolatry and the sin of immorality. The sin of idolatry. There's three main umbrellas of idolatry in the human heart. We're not talking about idols of wood or stone or gold. We're talking about anything that you place all of your hope for satisfaction, all of your trust, all of your uh, allegiance, what has authority over you. There's three main idols that I believe most of us, if not all of us, struggle with. The idol of comfort, the idol of control, and the idol of approval. The idol of comfort. So many sins could fall under that. The idol of just, I want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. I want to be comfortable. The idol of comfort. Maybe you're here this morning and you pursue money in a greedy fashion simply because you want to be comfortable. Instead of praying the prayer at the end of Proverbs chapter 30 where the man says, Lord, uh, just don't give me too much that I forget about you and and don't give me too little that I start, start stealing. Just give me enough that I depend on you, but you meet my needs. Comfort, the idol of comfort is just so vast. Can I ask you to ask your own heart, do you tolerate the, com- the idol of comfort in your own heart? Do you, do you tolerate, do you allow the idolatry of comfort to, to creep up? Maybe the idol of control. I want to be in control. I want to have control over people. I want to have control over finances. I want to have control over whatever it might be. The idol of approval. I will do anything to make somebody love me, to be happy with me. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. These are not wrong desires, but when they become uh, all-consuming God desires, when they in your heart take over the position in your life that God alone should have, a good gift that God has given to us when turned into a God thing becomes a bad thing. Don't succumb to idolatry. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the last sentence in John's epistle. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's been talking the entire time about the word of God and love for God, and then he says, oh, by the way, keep yourself from idols. How do you do that? Those two things that he talks about the entire letter. Be immersed in the word of God so you know what the truth is. Be immersed in a love for God so that you love him more than you love anything else. So, are there any idols in your own heart that before we come to these elements, you can say, God, I I need to stop tolerating this. I've allowed this to reign in my life for far too long. Is there immorality in your life? Is there immorality in your life that you're allowing just to continue? This is, uh, I'm going to tolerate it in my own life. It's not affecting anybody else. Is there immorality that you're tolerating? Bottom line is there's really three categories of people here. There's three categories of people. Number one, there's a non-believer. They've come into church. They know that they're not saved. They're just kind of checking out what Christianity looks like. And I would say, if that's you, if you know that you're not saved and you're just kind of checking out Christianity, you're totally welcome here. You're absolutely welcome here. I would love to have a conversation with you about why I love Jesus more than I love anything else in the world, why that's my fight every day when I wake up to say I want to love him more than I love anything else. You're absolutely welcome here. Secondly, the second category, there are believers who are fighting sin. 
They're humbly submitting themselves to Jesus' lordship in every area of their lives. They own sin for what it is. They hate it. They fight hard against it. They welcome other people to help them in the fight against sin. Once again, I say to you, if that's you, and I believe it's the majority of people here, you're welcome here. We're all in this fight together. We hate sin and we love Jesus. Where once we used to love sin and hate Jesus, God has regenerated our hearts. He's given us a new heart with new affections for Christ. And now we love Jesus and we all hate sin and we're all trying to fight sin. And we're helping each other out in that fight. That's why we gather together on Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. All we're doing when we gather together in fellowship is we're reminding each other, hey, do you remember Jesus is better? Jesus is better than whatever it is you're struggling with. Jesus is better than whatever it is you're fighting against. Jesus is better. We're just getting together saying he's better and we're praying for each other. We're loving each other. We're helping each other. But there's a third category of people here. There's a professing believer who is absolutely fine to let sin reign in their lives. There's no repentance. There's no help for the fight. There's no fight at all. They just say, yeah, I, I follow Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I love sin. Their life looks no different than that of a non-believer. And to you, if that is you, I would say you're, you're welcome here, but you should not be comfortable here. You should not be comfortable here. Because as we talked about a few Sundays ago, it would be unloving for genuine believers to see others who profess to follow Jesus living just like the world, involved in immorality, no repentance whatsoever, and to say, yeah, you're fine. That would be unloving. That would be like a doctor putting an x-ray slide up against that white light, seeing some tumor and going, eh, you're okay. You'll be fine. No, there is a deadly disease in all of our hearts. And that's why we proclaim from this pulpit, we proclaim through these elements, we must repent. Sin kills, and it cannot be tolerated. And here's what Satan desires. Satan does not want to push any of us away from Christianity. He wants us to get as close as we possibly can to Christianity and just be a little bit off so that we feel like we're safe and secure. And yet as we tolerate sin with no repentance in our lives, a habitual uh, a pattern of uh, a lack of repentance, we have a false sense of security. So, which category are you in? Which category are you in this morning? Are you a non-believer who's just seen what the gospel is all about? What is Jesus asking of us? What does the Bible say about him? Are you a believer who is fighting sin? You hate sin and you're working as hard as you can to kill it in your life. You're asking for help. Please help me. Please hold me accountable. Or are you here as a professing believer and God would say to you this morning through this letter, you can't tolerate sin anymore. You either say, you know what, I'm not saved. Or you say, I need to start making war in my heart against sin. By way of just an introduction to these elements, I want to read a couple quotes from a Puritan author named Thomas Watson. And as I read these, I just want to ask you to look inward. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking inward. We always say when we come to these communion elements, don't just look inward. And don't primarily look inward. Look outward. Look upward. Look to Christ. But before we turn our eyes to Him, we need to see our need for Him. I'm going to let Thomas Watson expose 
our need for him. He writes this, He who takes copper instead of gold wrongs himself. The most counterfeit saint deceives others while he lives, but deceives himself when he dies. To pretend to holiness when there is none is a vain thing. What comfort will a show of holiness yield on the last day? Will painted gold enrich? Will painted wine refresh? Or will painted holiness be a cordial at the hour of death? A pretense of sanctification is not to be rested in. Many ships that have had the name of hope, safeguard, and triumph have been cast upon the rocks. And so too many who have had the name of saint have been cast into hell. Thomas Watson would say, be careful the profession that you make. This morning, before you partake of these elements, look inward and say, God, is there sin that I'm tolerating that I need to repent of? He continues, a gracious soul searches whether there is any duty that's omitted, any sin that's cherished. Frequent reckonings keep God and conscience friends. I love that. Frequent reckonings. That's why we do this every month. It's a frequent reckoning to keep God and our conscience friends. Is there any sin that I'm harboring, any bitterness? Is there anything that I'm not repenting of? Uh, Now, in a moment of reckoning, we can ask God to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to show us so that God and our conscience can be friends. If you would show yourself godly, give a certificate of divorce to every sin. He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. Sin is such a trade that whoever follows is sure to break. What did Achan get by his wedge of gold? It was a wedge to cleave asunder his soul from God, to tear him away from God. What did Judas get by his treason? He purchased himself a hangman's noose. What did King Ahaz get by worshiping the gods of Damascus? They were the ruin of him and all of Israel. Sin is first comical, then it's tragic. He goes on to say, Pride is the swelling of the soul. Lust is the fever. Error is the gangrene. Unbelief, the plague of the heart hypocrisy the scurvy, hardness of heart is the stone, anger the frenzy, malice the wolf in the chest, covetousness is dropsy, spiritual sloth is the green sickness, apostasy is epilepsy. Here are 11 soul diseases, and when they come to full height, they are dangerous and most frequently prove mortal. He that feeds such a disease feeds an enemy. Some diseases are starved. So starve your sins. Either kill your sin or your sin will kill you. And then he ends by saying this, beware of cherishing even one of your sins. Now, we have heard incredible warnings this morning. Don't cherish sin. Don't harbor sin. Don't allow sin to grow in your heart. And the warnings are good. The warnings help us and the warnings need to be there. But even in these letters, Jesus doesn't end with warnings. He ends with the promise of himself. If you deny sin, and you say no to sin, and you say yes to Jesus, you get Jesus and you get everything that comes with him. You get heaven itself. You get to eat at the the tree of paradise, as we saw uh, earlier in the church of Ephesus in the letter in chapter 2. You get Jesus himself. 
Why would we do what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2 that Israel did? Hew out for ourselves broken cisterns that cannot even hold water and try and find satisfaction in the mud and goop there. Why would we do that when there is a fountain of living water, fresh springs that Jesus says, come and drink here and you will have water everlasting. Your thirst will always be quenched and then you'll be able to give that to others. So brothers and sisters, there are warnings that we need to hear and we need to judge ourselves accurately even through these elements. But these elements are given to us as that promise. That if you turn from sin and you trust the Savior, you get something infinitely more satisfying than sin. Oh, sin can give you pleasure for a season and in the end it gives death. Jesus gives eternal life in the here and now to be lived, to be cherished, and in the end you get even more life. So, this is what communion is for. It's a reckoning. It's a time of reckoning and it's a time of rededication to remind ourselves. It's a renewal. It's a vow renewal with God. God's never breaking his end of the vow. We constantly break it. And today's a day to do that reckoning to say, God, thank you for Jesus. And if you can cling to the gift of Christ himself, and drink from the fountain of living water, you will taste a glory that is so infinitely satisfying that you will then go back to sin and taste it and go, oh, that's disgusting. I don't want any of that. And God will grow in your heart a love for Christ that overshadows and destroys every other sin in this world. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your amazing love that you would give us yourself that you would give us Christ. Father, you would send him to earth to be born, to die, to bear our sin, and to take away our shame, our iniquity, to take it all away. What gift. What amazing grace to be given the gift of Christ. We want to cling to him. We want to look inward And we want to fall woefully short. We want to see that there is sin that we need to deal with, that there is a sobriety that's happening in these moments of the vow renewals to say, in this moment of reckoning, I need Christ. He alone is my standing place. He alone is my righteousness. God, I pray for all of us, for those in this room who would Say, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm just checking this out. God, I pray that they would see the severity of sin, but they would see the the beauty of Christ being given to them in place of their sin to take it away and to give them satisfaction. God, I pray for all the believers in this room that we would do the work of slaying our sin through the Holy Spirit and through the Word, and that as we do that, we would find Christ all the more sweet God, I pray for any in this room who claim the name of Christ but live no differently than a non-believer. That this morning there would be a, a reckoning, a careful reckoning. And that we could all come to this table and saying these words on our lips, what gift of grace is Christ? Help us to abandon sin and cling to him. The men are going to come now and pass these elements out as we sing. Take them, just hold them.
we will partake of communion together as a church family, so just hold on to them. And if you are in category one, you are a a non-believer, just checking things out. Thank you for being here. You're welcome here, and I'm glad that you're here. Just let these elements go. They're for believers. If you're here in category number three, and you profess to be a Christian, but you are living in unrepentant sin, rebellious against God, I would plead with you just to let these elements go. The Bible says you would drink judgment upon yourself if you were to partake. But if you are here this morning in category number two, in the fight, you're in the trenches with your sin, and you're pleading with God to help you and give you grace as you fight. These elements are for you to to partake of and rejoice. So take them, hold them. We will eat and drink together. One gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in Mom.
will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to this I hold my hope is only Jesus all the glory evermore to him when the race is complete still my lips shall repeat yet not I but through Christ in me. And to this I cling. I know my sin has been defeated. So we take a good look inward. We look in our hearts. We look in our souls. And we don't like what we see. And then we look outward and upward. For every one look we take in our own hearts, we take 10, 20, 30 to Christ, our great high priest. And we see that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been defeated. Not because of our doing, but Christ in us. That's why we celebrate communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread during the Passover Seder, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, it's a symbol of my body, which is going to be broken for you. The only way that we can be made whole is for Jesus to be broken. The only way that we can be given perfection is for Jesus to take all of our sin and be crushed for it. The only way to get to heaven is be perfect. And since all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and are imperfect and sinful, we need the perfection of another. And Jesus says, I will gladly give you that perfection and I'll take upon your sinfulness and be broken on your behalf. He said, do this as often as you do it, remembering me. Let's remember him with gratefulness in our hearts as we partake. And during the Seder, he took a cup filled with wine and he passed it around to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant I'm going to make with you. I'm going to ratify it in my blood, in my death, in my, in my resurrection. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away ultimately our sin. And so Jesus said, I will shed my blood on the cross because I love you. You cannot do anything to get to God on your own. So Jesus said, I will do everything to get to you and bring you safely home. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Let's partake together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. And we want to resound through song, not just with the song of our lips, but how we live as we walk out these doors. Grateful for amazing grace. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and just sing uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace.